If you wish to follow along, I would strongly suggest that you acquire a copy of the Bhagavad Gita and a set of three markers, different colors. I choose red, orange, and blue in my text. Um, but you can choose whatever you like. If you don't have a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, you can download one from my website. The link will be in the description. It's very interesting to note that modern historians only consider the Vedic period to have been present from 1500 BC to 500 BC. However, that is an obvious lie and a misrepresentation of the facts. We know that there was an Indus Valley civilization. The Harappan cities have been dated uh, to around 3000 BC, and they have a direct connection to the Vedic civilization because they were all based around the Saraswati River. The Saraswati River uh, is well celebrated in the Rig Veda, which is the primary text of the Vedic civilization, of the Vedic religion. And um, in fact, it's described that the Saraswati River went all the way from the mountains to the sea. So there is enough archaeological evidence to support the view that there was a civilization along the banks of the Saraswati any time from 8000 BC to 3000 BC. Around 3000 BC, um, an event or a series of cataclysmic events took place which um, made the river shrink and it no longer flowed all the way down to the sea. We find this in the evidence of the settlements in the Bahawalpur region of the Punjab, uh, where are the last recorded settlements of the uh, Harappan civilization. So it means that um, the river was shrinking. And then again, in 1900 BC, there was another cataclysmic event, possibly an earthquake, which completely um, brought a stop to the flow of the river. And its tributaries were then taken up by the Indus and the Ganga systems. This much too has been recorded. Um, so that was the basis, the geographical basis of the Vedic civilization. In fact, it is often mentioned in popular lore that the Saraswati went underground. In fact, it merged with the Ganga and the Yamuna and eventually landed up at Prayag. So Prayag became the new center because Pushkar was the holiest center in the Treta age, in the Dwapar age, that honor shifted to Kurukshetra, where this battle takes place, that is central to the Bhagavad Gita. And eventually, after the Great War, when the Kali Yuga started, um, the holy city became Prayag, which is the confluence of the rivers Yamana and Ganga, and the mystical river Saraswati, whose tributaries then flow sort of underground, as it were. So it is not too far-fetched to assume that the Vedic civilization was primarily a Saraswati civilization. Um, we call it now the Indus Valley civilization or the Harappan civilization, but definitely that was the original Vedic civilization from 8000 to 3000 BC. 3000 BC is a very significant date. Uh, it is considered to be around this time that the Great War took place. In fact, According to Aryapat and the Surya Siddhant, the war itself took place in the year 3132 BC, in the month of December. Thirty years after the war, Krishna departed from the planet, 
and thus began Kali Yuga and the decline in morals. So now I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes of these people. They've just lost their civilization. The river that they had built everything around has vanished. They've had to move. Now they are nomads. What happens to a people that suffer such a cataclysmic event? Well, for one, they definitely become more conservative. They're not building cities anymore. They are restricting their activities to villages. From an urban civilization, they become an agrarian civilization. And the second thing they begin to do is to start to compile their holy texts, their memories, their history. And this is why it's not wrong to say that the Vedas were compiled around the year 1500 BC. Because it is quite likely that whatever was transmitted through memory had to be conserved. And so the process began. Rig Veda became classified further into the Samveda and the Yajurveda. The Samveda were basically the hymns of the Rig Veda that were cast into poetic meter by the Brahmins. And for this reason, the Brahmins acquired great merit for their ability to commit these aphorisms to music and to rote learning. The Yajurveda became a compilation of all these protocols and hymns and procedures on how to conduct yagyas and fire sacrifices to propitiate the gods on behalf of the kings. And the Atharveda, not to forget that one, is of course the collection of magical charms and spells and chants to ward off evil spirits and, and also diseases. Now these priests who conducted these sacrifices had a very cozy relationship with the kshatriyas, the kings. Uh, the kings wanted to obtain favors from the gods. Uh, they wanted to have greater wealth. They wanted to win wars. And the priests uh, would perform these sacrifices, promising them great reward on bestowed by the heavenly Indra. Now, so much so is the early days of the Kali Yuga, eventually this relationship became corrupt, as decay is inherent in all things. The Brahmin priests became covetous of the king's wealth, and they wanted him to sacrifice more and more. Well, of course, when you say sacrifice, it doesn't end up in the fire. There is some leftover for the Brahmins who have conducted the sacrifice. And so they must take something home with them. And that something turned out to be gold, jewels, and cows, wealth of all kinds. And, and this, of course, created greed in their hearts. So they started to devise greater and greater complex yagyas. They wanted to get as much as they could. It became a quid pro quo situation. And the upper two classes had complete control uh, over the society of the day. The other two classes, Veshas and Shudras, were not even allowed 
to read the Vedas or have any sort of learning whatsoever. This led to an obvious decline in morals in the society. The sacrifices began to become more and more violent. Um, the priests started to become addicted to meat, um, asking the king to sacrifice all sorts of animals. And uh, the pure contemplative Vedic religion suddenly became very, very bloody and messy. It was in this milieu, around 500 BC, that the Buddha appeared with his message of non-violence. And this message appeals to the better-minded people of the age, who have become tired of the debauchery that's going on in the palaces and the Yagya halls, um, and of course those who have been deprived of all of its benefits, and begin to see philosophy in a brand new light, in a more, more pure and more simplistic way of living the right way, the right action, uh, the theories of the principles of karma, of rebirth, are represented in a pure fashion by the Buddha. This, of course, causes great consternation among the ancient crowd of Brahmins and Kshatriyas whose, uh, whose whole livelihood has now been disrupted. Because the Buddha preaches non-violence, the Kshatriya, whose uh, very sine qua non is violence, whose duty, according to Vedic religion, is to conduct violent activities, to fight in battle, to die in battle, to kill as many as possible, has suddenly become rendered ineffectual by the Buddhist philosophy. And most of all, most of all, the Brahmins, whose whose entire livelihood depended on the performance of yagyas, suddenly become endangered. They're, they cannot conduct sacrifices anymore, or at least not according to the Buddhist traditions. So in order to protect their uh, economic systems, they started to attack the Buddhists. They started to attack this philosophy vehemently. They disparaged the Buddhists, um, in all their texts, they heaped curses on them. Until eventually, Buddhists became so popular that they couldn't fight them anymore. At least not theologically. So they had to invent newer techniques. By the turn of the millennium, um, India had been invaded by the Greeks under the flag of Alexander the Great, around 300 BC. And the Greeks had also uh, adopted the Buddhist religion. They had intermingled after the passing of uh, Alexander from these lands. Um, he left behind uh, his general, Seleucus Nicator, uh, who brought in further waves of Greeks into uh, the subcontinent, establishing three different cities, all called Alexandria, um, and a society that was more egalitarian than the um, Vedic civilization was. And it's incidentally, this is all happening along the banks of the former Saraswati, all happening what is now um, Pakistan and uh, the Punjab. And the Buddhists, as I said, 
um, influenced the Greeks to a great extent. The Greeks, in turn, influenced the Buddhist works of art. Uh, we find that Buddhist statues of those days have very finely uh, carved robes, um, which were very much in the Greek tradition. Prior to the Greek invasion, there were no um, images of the Buddha. But now, uh, with this new influence, we have a, a brand new um, religion that's taking shape. This decline in Vedic religion, in the cozy relationship, the corrupt relationship between the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, came to a head in the kingdom of Nanda. Nanda was a king uh, in Magadh, which is now present in Bihar. Eventually, he was overthrown by Chandragupta Maurya under the tutelage of Chanakya or Kautilya. And then we learn that other schools of thought had also appeared, like Jainism, because Chandragupta Maurya then converted to Jainism at the end of his uh, kingly reign. We know that Chandragupta Maurya's grandson, Ashoka, of course, captured all of India and after the Kalinga War, converted everything to Buddhism. Not only that, uh, was the entire subcontinent of India converted to Buddhism, but he also sent his son and daughter as emissaries across all of Asia to preach the message of the Buddha, which was an entirely different conquest for him, but very effective, which persists even to this day. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the Brahmins of the day, who are about 300 years after Christ? This is carrying on. They had to retaliate. They had to bring themselves back. And Ashoka was a very potent figure. I mean, he had single-handedly destroyed everything the Brahmins stood for. And they didn't like him. He was a king. He was a kshatriya. It was his kshatriya dharma to conduct war. He should have been asking them to conduct sacrifices. But he didn't want to deal with Brahmins anymore. He was a Buddhist. So they decided to make of him a pathetic figure in their own literature. That was their best revenge. That's all they could do. Now at this time, they had compiled also the history of their past, which was known as Jaya. This was of course, the um, original Mahabharata, 8,800 verses in length, a history of the ancient Vedic times from Yore, 8,000 to 3,000 BC, the, the glory days before the Great War. So Jaya was a, a living document. It was a historical text and, and one which grew. So the original was, of course, you know, 8,800 verses. We have the rendition by Vashampayana, who expanded it to 24,000 verses, and then eventually it reached the massive size of 100,000 verses, uh, as recited by Ugrashravas, the son of Lomaharshan. And this is even recorded by the Greek historians, uh, who mentioned that the Indians have an Iliad of 100,000 verses. And into this expanding text, they had to incorporate the events that were now transpiring with their wars against the Buddhists. But not directly so. 
they had to make a point of it. And so they decided to make of him a pathetic figure. The ancient Kurukshetra war had a very brave and stalwart hero called Arjun, who was indefeatable in battle, who was sharp and who had conquered many a kingdom on behalf of his brothers and behalf of his guru. And what if he had, what if he had suffered the same kind of despondency that Ashoka suffered after the Kalinga war? Only, only for Arjun it would be before the great war. Now what if we were to make Arjuna as a metaphor for Ashoka? Now we know that Ashoka had to kill his siblings in order to ascend the throne of Magad. So what if Arjun has to face the same prospect? Well, he did have to face the same prospect of killing his own siblings. That's quite common. All kings have to have at some point in time. It's very common in the royal order of a battle for the throne. So what if we take that simile and we put it together? There's a thought. Let's make Arjun cry on the battlefield. Make him look weak. And people will know what we're talking about. Because you see, in the original Jaya, there is no mention of anything like this happening. At the fag end of the Pandava's exile, the 13th year, they were supposed to spend incognito, which they did in the kingdom of Virat. And at the end of that, when they were discovered by Duryodhan, um, Duryodhan created a diversion by stealing the cows of King Virat. And having done that, created an excuse for the Pandavas to expose themselves. And so it was that Drona and Bhishma and Duryodhan assembled on the battlefield. And Pandavas, especially Arjun, in the form of Brihanalla, faced them. And he shot arrows at them. He did not show any remorse. That was a year before the actual Mahabharata war. So how is it possible that, that at this juncture, when he is faced with an exam that he has already taken, Arjuna should be shaking in his boots. He did not. He could not possibly have done that. In fact, as we know very well, it was he who had consoled Yudhishthir by saying, the Narada has told me that wherever there is Krishna, there is always victory. So the Brahmins then had to make of him a pathetic figure, artificially, by imposing the weaknesses and the impotence that they saw in Ashoka, from their point of view, onto the character of Arjuna. I mean, he's so far gone anyway. And then also to use Krishna as their own mouthpiece to then admonish him, to remind him of his duty, bring him back into the fold. And anyone else, any other king who would be tempted to follow Ashoka's example and become a Buddhist. So this indeed is the first layer of the Rubik Gita that we will be solving in the next episode.